Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. The following podcast contains explicit language. From New York City, this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm John McWhorter. At Columbia University, I teach linguistics and, for some reason, music history and philosophy and sometimes even American studies. I have written Our Magnificent Bastard Tongue, The Untold History of English, more recently The Language Hoax, Why the World Looks the Same in Any Language, and because my nearest and dearest are always reminding me to ballyhoo for myself, my book coming out in the fall is Words on the Move, Why English Can't and Won't Sit Still Like Literally. Anyway, I'm honored to be guest hosting Lexicon Valley for the summer. And my guest this week is Anne Patty, who has written a really neat book called Living with a Dead Language. The book is an exploration of Latin cum memoir. See, I got that cum in there because it's Latin for with. Anne has devoted a second act in her life to, of all things, learning Latin after a career dedicated to publishing. I must admit that of all the books that Anne brought to fruition, the one on the list that most struck a chord with me was Flowers in the Attic, a hair-raising tale that I remember a paperback copy of floating around the house when I was a kid. My mother loved that book and the 400 follow-ups. In any case, I must admit that language guy, though I try to be, my Latin is tragically weak. I actually had a solid three years of it in college, and I recall my teachers telling me I was good at it. I did some Catullus and such. In fact, one of the reasons I'm sitting here is probably one of them who told me, language is your calling. She was English, in case that wasn't clear, which I had not known, and if it was my calling, Latin was not how I followed up on her advice. I'm not sure I ever amassed a good enough vocabulary to read anything, and it seemed to be so rare that I ever encountered a speaker of the language, so I moved on. But living with a dead language is such a warm marmalade of an experience, or more like a pâté de foie gras on bruschetta, that it's made me want to take Latin up again. Yet, there are always questions, especially in interview format. have to ask questions. So here is something. We're accustomed to hearing Latin described as a dead language, even in the title living with a dead language. And yet, technically speaking, Latin is alive and well. It became what we now know as the Romance languages, such as French and Spanish and Italian. And depending on how you count it, really dozens of other languages now scattered around Western, Southern, and even Eastern Europe all descended directly from good old e pluribus unum Latin. So instead of out of many one, it was out of one came many. Ex uno plures, I hope. But this does lead to a question. One could ask, why learn a dead language? And many have. But you could also more pointedly ask, and why learn a majestic group of living languages ancestral stage? Why? Why not live with a live language? First of all, I have a second live language, which is French. I had 12 years of French in college, and I mm-hmm. have kept it up marginally. 
I needed a reason to get out of the house. I needed something that was going to be difficult. I needed something that was going to require true dedication because I wasn't working anymore. And my work, well, I was one of those lucky people who had a job that I would have done anyway. So it took me about a year to figure out what I wanted to do with the time I had left. And I realized, given my interests in words, that the thing I had missed was Latin. I wanted to know the mama of them all. And I didn't know how long I was going to keep at it, but I thought, since I go around correcting all my friends' grammar, they don't particularly care for it, but I feel it's my job in life. I thought, you know, you're kind of a bit of a fraud, because how can you really be a grammarian if you don't know Latin? And I am a grammar geek. I love grammar. So that's how I decided. It was the one thing in my life I had not had that I thought, given my own little identity with myself, I ought to have. You know, I get that, but there's something more in your book. There's this sense of translation from the Latin almost as meditation. One of the prettiest etymologies that I learned from your book is person, persona, is a sounding through. So pair is through and sona is sound. It's a sounding through the emptiness of actual reality in that kind of Epicurean sense with the book, The Swerve, that everybody at least pretended to read a few years I did. ago. And did you actually <laughs> I did. I pretended to read it. I talked about it in classes. But it's interesting. Why is it that, as you say, my Latin study is another form of meditation for me, another way of slowing down, of turning off the engine, keeping sane through translation? Because for me, it was always, it was work. It felt like chopping wood, and I would come away from it sweating and a little frustrated. Why does it give you such joy? Well, chop wood, carry water is a very famous Zen statement, and I have been a Zen student also for however long. I'm not the greatest Zen student, but I am a student. Um, It gives me so much joy because I am a person who does not easily sit still. Hmm. I have a very busy brain. It's always whirring around this and that and this and that. But when I translate Latin, I have to concentrate and focus very hard. It still takes me at least two hours to translate 40 lines of Latin poetry. And I'm now in year six. So Hmm. it's, it's not a quick thing. Why is it so delightful to me? What Latin can do in poetry, because any word can be anywhere the poet wants it. The Mm -hmm. subject of the sentence can be the end of the sentence or the middle of the sentence. The Mm -hmm. verb can be anywhere. So there are things that happen in Latin poetry where the words enact what they're meaning. And so it's a constant source of delight. Mm -hmm. And I'm a person who used to read dictionaries. Okay, so you're one of them. I I am one of them. I say having been one myself, right. And so you enjoy the meanings of these words and learning them. Yeah. And then putting them together is almost on another level. You're still at it, apparently. I'm still at it. Because the book through four exact years. Oh, no, I'm still at it. So what's your – do you still have a daily routine? I'm teaching at a local library. I have one 10-year-old genius I teach, and I have also some junior high students. I've been doing that. What I'm doing this summer is I'm reading a book called uh, Latin via Ovid, mm-hmm. which is a textbook, but I love Ovid and I love the myths. And, and it's kind of a primer. It's not an advanced Latin. It's not original Ovid. It's mm-hmm. dumbed down. I don't want to say dumbed down. but uh, So I read that. I've gone... <laughs> At the end of July, I am going to Conventiculum Bostiones, where I think there's that about— That was Latin. That was Latin. About 30 of us will be living in a dorm on a campus in Salem, Massachusetts, mm. speaking only 
latte. It's good for you. For yeah. seven days. Boy, that sounds fun. <laughs> You're actually going to come away from it, though, knowing Latin in a way that you never have before, I would imagine, because you can't know a language until you speak it. That is correct. I went, I went to a weekend uh, in February. Uh, so I, I have done it for about 36 hours. Mm-hmm. And I'm not one of the better people there, but I'm getting better. And you start to get it when you hear it. And I'm told that once you're in mm-hmm. day three, it's like Zen retreats. Yeah. Once you get past day three, your something mind, happens. something happens. So that's what I'm doing. I'll be going back to class in uh, September. And we live in an interesting age where paradigms of education are shifting. And people are beginning to ask, really, Disturbing questions. I mean, some people are even wondering whether we should still be assigning the five-paragraph essay. So I want to ask you, with these children, and you discuss this in the book, why do they need to know Latin? And I say this is a great lover of languages. I you know, still love Latin from afar, but still, in terms of what they need to do, they've got their phones in their hands. What are they going to get from Latin? If you know Latin, you know English grammar. We all know that English grammar is not often taught anymore. We have language arts Mm -hmm. instead. And that has led to the between you and I's of the world. Mm -hmm. If you know the accusative case, if you learn Latin, you learn grammar from the ground up. It also lets you think in a fundamentally different way. I call it gymnastics for the brain Mm. because you don't read the way we read in English. So mm-hmm. it to me, it is a brain training. It is a delight in language, and it is a lesson in grammar, not to mention when you get good at it, you get to read unbelievable poetry. I wrote a little piece for a thing where it said 40 reasons you should learn Latin, mm-hmm. one of which was uh, because you can take on the original dead white man on their own terms. You can <laughs> read them in the original. <laughs> There is definitely something to be said for that. Translation is a problem. Part of the reason I'm a linguist is because I always hated reading translated versions of books. I always thought, what did the person really write? And yeah. The only way that you can know. Well, if we're going to talk about grammar and especially the conception of grammar that smells like old books, I actually remember one of my Latin teachers in college was the funniest professor I've ever had. He was an older gent, and he had a certain sense of humor. And the funniest thing I ever saw a professor do in class is that he got to the ablative absolute, and it was a little early in the semester, and he said, oh, well, this says the ablative absolute, and I don't understand that, so we're just going to move on. (laughs) He actually did, and we didn't learn it for months. I thought that that dismissiveness was so funny. Who is Mr. Ablative Absolute in your book? May I ask that or not? Uh, it, was my, it was just my second husband. <laughs> I was just wondering why was he called that? Because what, how is a person an Ablative Absolute? Okay. Uh, ablative Absolute is a phrase that is not essential to the rest of the sentence. The okay. sentence is still whole and complete without mm-hmm. it. So there was a period of my life – where I went through a very bad time in many ways, not only with a bad marriage, I was very ill, I had work nightmares. And the great thing about the ablative absolute is it can sum up a whole era in two words and then move on. Like vice versa is from an ablative absolute. Yeah, the, the more famous one that I think is still used is he's dictis, with, those, mm-hmm. with that being said. Right. Um, that being said, and then you can move on and... Talk right. about other things. Right. So and, and so I fell in love with the ablative absolute <laughs> as a concept because what 
it's used a lot, especially in kind of lesser Latin romance, because it's it's a very handy way mm-hmm. to trans to make a transition in writing. I see what you mean. Latin has um, a feeling of concision compared to English, partly because of things like that, partly because you have the case endings on the nouns. And so it seems there are fewer words. And actually, there's a there's a crazy book by a certain M.J. Harper. I don't know anything about this person, including their gender. And so I don't think that this is mean of me to say that it's a completely mistaken, insane book about the history of the English language. It's called The Secret History of the English Language. It's also one of the funniest books ever written. And one of the crackpot theories of this Harper is that classical Latin never existed as a language, that it's something that people made up as a kind of written code because no actual language could possibly be that Concise. Nevertheless, you're having these experiences actually speaking Mm -hmm. the language. What does one get out of speaking a language that exists in no country as a native code that you could say a culture is not connected with? You know, it's it's like going to a science fiction convention. Many of us have secret little passions that are rather odd, and we like to be with other people who have them too. Mm-hmm. And so for me, I love going with Latinus and speaking Latin because I hear it differently. Also, as you said about your teacher, most Latin people are really fun. <laughs> are they really? They're so irreverent. Was... They're smart. They're funny. They're not so he wasn't these an outs- dorky people outlier. walking around. Yeah. <laughs> no, they're not. So they're going to be a lot of hymns. Okay. They're yeah. going to be a lot of hymns. And speaking it. Well, as you said, can you truly know a language without speaking it? No, you cannot. Mm-hmm. And Latin is capacious, and you can use it to describe very modern things. Mm-hmm. For example, one way of saying a jet would be a aeronavis calerissimum, which mm-hmm. would be the fastest ship in the air. Hmm. Okay. So you can use Latin and make up neologisms, which, which people do. Right. But Latin also had words for cocktails and beers. and You know, it had a lot of words that people don't expect. That Caesar probably doesn't talk about very much in the Correct. text that you might be given Correct. Latin 101. <laughs> so it lives. It lives in that way. I know that a little bit because actually that professor, it's interesting. He – I think that man kind of liked me, and I was so unattractive in college that it never (laughs) occurred to me that anybody would feel that way about me. But I look back and I realize he gave me various gifts, most of which I still have. One of them includes a comic book, um, Euvenus, which I have a copy of right here. I hadn't looked at it. Euvenus, thank you. Yeah, I've got to to learn Latin again. (laughs) And, you know, we have Paniculus Dentarius for Toothbrush, which is in this book. And there's a frame that actually reminded me of something that you said where somebody doesn't have enough money in a phone booth and what they say is oh minime iam per mihi restant numoli and so oh minime is what from the context i'm imagining and to tell you the truth i didn't bother to go get my dictionary that's going to be oh no mm-hmm. and yet minime mm-hmm. does not really mean no and it reminded me that in your book you say that latin is one of those languages where there's no word for yes and there's no word for no Isn't so that crazy? Kind of make stuff up is there a latin frame of mind do things like that tell you something about the Roman mind? Uh, they do, but I'm not there yet. I'm trying mm-hmm. to get there. Mm-hmm. And one of my goals is to understand the Roman mind. Uh, I figure I've got two or three more years before reaching that goal of study. Mm-hmm. 
but yeah, I, I I think the not having yes and the not having no in the various cases, I, I think I put in there ones where almost as if wishing would make it so, mm-hmm. that you see the kind of power structure. And maybe by not having yes or no, or maybe always hedging it a mm-hmm. little bit, gives you a lot more wiggle room when you're <laughs> conquering a province. <laughs> It's very interesting to, for me at least, to dwell on Latin at all at this length, given that I had pretty much given it up. I remember finding it exhausting in all of its delight. And you've made me realize that there's an awful lot I had not thought about. And another thing that occurs to me is that back when I was pretending to do Latin in the mid-80s, it was about books, books written by people such as um, Gildersleeve, as you mentioned, which I enjoyed because (laughs) The Great Gildersleeve is my favorite old radio show and it always makes me happy. But books like that, they tended not to smell good and you had to memorize things. You had to make flashcards and they seem to have worked for you, but I always found that flashcards were a very limited tool and that's all there was. Now, from reading your book, I'm realizing that a lot of Latin can be learned from the phone. We Uh, have these apps that you're talking about. The The internet Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Everything is available on the Internet. You can type in a word and it'll give you the case. There's a lot of people doing spoken Latin on YouTube. Mm -hmm. And there's podcasts from Paideia, which Mm -hmm. is an organization I'm involved with, Mm -hmm. where people give lectures in Latin and those are now available online. There are amazing resources online. I don't know how they did it before then. (laughs) So it's at the point where learning Latin is simply easier now because to drill all of that mess into your head, nothing is going to be more effective than to have it in your ears. That's true, but memory is memory. Uh, So memorizing is still hard whether you hear it, whether you see it, whether you read it. You got to memorize. So it has to be repeated. Yeah. A lot. You know, I find my technique for teaching myself languages has always been to, at a certain point, find translations of something that you would have wanted to read anyway, because it keeps you pulling along and it's better for the memory because everything is just more vibrant. And frankly, reading about something Caesar did probably isn't going to be as vibrant as the sorts of things that these podcasts are about, the sorts of things you can read, or this comic book, which has toothbrushes and phone booths and things like that. Well, but they now teach young people, there's a series called Minimus. You know, they have, the the teaching of Latin is changing. Hmm. Research has shown that that there's 4 to 5% of people such as I and probably you who are grammar nerds. Mm-hmm. Reading translation makes us happy. We get it. We want to do it. We love it. The other 95% don't <laughs> really like that. <laughs> For some reason. So there is a big movement afoot by the living Latinists to have Latin be taught much more similarly to the way a modern language is taught, Mm -hmm. which includes incorporating spoken Latin into the classroom. And that's happening more and more, and textbooks are being published to reflect that. Hmm. I think it's going to revolutionize. Most of the these these living Latin things I go to, the weekends and the the conventions, are mostly high school teachers Mm -hmm. starting this. So... There's a younger generation that's coming up that's changing the way Latin is going to be taught. And the older ones, I think they're going to die out and Latin will be changed. I, ha- I have a discussion with an old friend of mine who's a Latinist 
who went to the Latin school in Chicago and did Wheelocks when you were thrown right into Wheelock, yes. Yeah, when you were thri- thrown right into Julius Caesar from the get go. Right. There was no made up Latin. Right. You were doing real Latin. And real Latin I had a little of that. Yeah. is a lot harder than made up Latin. Yes. Because no matter how good a Latinist you are, you don't think in the convoluted way those people did. No, especially so, not from English. So yeah. it's quite a bit different, but it does seem to really help kids. Okay. And young people and adults, too. You know what? And I'm going to throw you a curveball. Russian. You know, we talk about how Latin's got these cases, et cetera. And there's a tendency when we talk about Latin, and I have done it, too, to make it seem as if Latin and maybe Greek are somehow unique in this. But if you're going to deal with cases and bewildering irregularity and crazy word order and a language which from English makes you say again and again, why, 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 including the three genders. Russians like that. You get the same mental workout from Russian. You can get almost the same mental workout in learning to translate from it, especially if you deal with poetry. And then you have the benefit that depending on where you live, there seem to be an awful lot of people running around who speak it and it's connected to a culture. If I just asked you, why not Russian instead of Latin? Is there, an, is there an answer to that? I have no idea what I would say. It never response. occurred to me. And I have some Russian friends, quite good friends who are Russian. Yeah. Um, it didn't occur to me. And because Latin is the mother language of our culture, of mm-hmm. a Western culture, mm-hmm. there was that too. Sure. Now, as soon as you said Russian, I thought, oh, wow, Tolstoy in the original. Yeah. Wow. Yes. yes. Yeah. Pushkin. <laughs> hear what they really said. Well, yeah. maybe when I finish my Latin adventure, I'll move along to Russian. I strongly recommend it to tell you the truth because you would find it much easier. I can't. This is going to sound so Can I audit your class? You see, yes, <laughs> you may. I find Latin so much easier to process now in my middle age after having gotten Russian under my belt in my 30s and 40s because that crazy word order and the cases all feel quite natural. I remember looking at uh-huh. even this comic book back during the Reagan administration and thinking, good Lord, all that stuff hanging at the end. And now I just look at it and I think, okay, it's kind of like Italian that acts like Russian. Right. So you would find Russian, I think, probably much easier than you would have 10, 10 years ago. I have to ask you, though, because this is something that really makes the book sock home. What is the connection between Latin and, if I may, your, your mother? Well, you can see this. The audience can't. But this is the medal I write about that my mother won. My mother and I didn't have a particularly close relationship, uh, and she never went to college. But she was very, very proud that when she was in high school, she was the best Latinist in the state of Indiana and won a medal. Mm -hmm. And she always wanted me to take Latin, and I didn't. I wanted to take French. Mm -hmm. And I didn't think about her when I started taking Latin. But when I started writing the book, she started coming in. Mm -hmm. She came into the book, and she kept coming in. And through writing the book, so that my re- wasn't deliberate. Okay. No, she just showed up, huh. and she showed up, and she kept showing up. And then everyone who read the book said, "We want more of your mother." Yeah, that's how you <laughs> feel reading the book, exactly. And so she actually now begins and ends the book. And um, my relationship with her has changed. We're quite close now. I, I feel very sad that I don't believe in an afterlife. Yeah, because if I believed in one, I would love you, her to see this that now. She's reading that she would be reading mm-hmm. the book. You but would, I still changed our relationship. There, there's something, there's a, a theme that runs through my book, uh, which was a statement made by a, a man named Kofi Busio, who's a well-known Iyengar teacher and a philosopher, 
who always says you cannot change your future. You can only change your past. Mm-hmm. And by that he meant? Well, what it means is that— Explain it nicely in the book. If something bad happens to you in the past and you become like the victim mentality— Mm-hmm. then you're going to carry that and be a victim. If something bad happens in your past and three weeks later you decide, wow, I really learned a lesson from that. Mm-hmm. That's good. And you change, then you've changed your past. So changing your past is how you look at the past. And the future, of course, is all about how you look at the past. Mm-hmm. So I have changed my relationship with my mother in the past going on into the future. That's a beautiful thing. And I should say that I would never know in terms of the organic structure of the book that you hadn't planned it to open and close with her. It actually makes it very much a whole. And thank you very much for talking to me about Latin. I cannot express how much fun I had getting reacquainted with something that I thought of as a dead subject. Latin is living for me, and I think it will for anybody who has a read through this lovely book. So thank you for being with me. Ago gratis, Tibby. Me invitanti a transmissionem breviorum tuam. And that means something like, thank you for inviting me to be on this podcast, doesn't it? Indeed it does. We got to end with real Latin. Thank you very much, Anne. Libenter. <laughs> is that your welcome? This is a great day. Tell us your thoughts about the show. You can reach us at lexiconvalley at slate.com. That's lexiconvalley at slate.com. Follow us on Twitter at lexiconvalley. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts, and Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of the Panoply Network. The show is edited by Afim Shapiro. I'm John McWhorter. Thanks so much for listening, and see you back here in two weeks. 